Welcome to the latest episode of Star Cells and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Fuzz Rana, and I'll be your host today, and I'll guide you through the show's topics. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, the work done by a team of researchers at uh, an organization called FAME that claims to have assembled RNA molecules on a glass surface. And, and I'm joined in studio by Jeff Zwerink, an astrophysicist and a Christian apologist. Jeff, uh, what are you going to be talking about today? I am going to be talking about some ways that people have tried to apply AI to do scientific research and what sort of implications that has for humanity, believe it or not. So. Oh, interesting, interesting topic. Okay, but before we get into the discussion, I just want to encourage all of you to uh, go to our website, reasons.org, where you can learn about our organization and the types of resources we have. Uh, also, uh, you can uh, follow us on sh social media, RTB underscore official. And then last but not least, go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe, subscribe, and set a reminder using that bell so that you can be notified whenever a new episode of Star Cells and God drops. Okay, Jeff, uh, really interested in, in, in discussing AI as a lot of people are. So why don't you go ahead and, and share, uh, take it away? Well, so I was reading in the scientific literature the other day, and I came across an article, uh, you know, title is Machine Learning Pins Down Cosmological Parameters. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind what we're doing here is that when we're studying the universe, um, remarkably, we can, with a relatively few numbers of inputs, we can say, all right, we can explain mm -hmm. most of what's going on that we've been able to measure in the universe. These would be constants? Yeah, uh, well... Yes and no. I mean, you know, it would be like the, the matter density of the universe, oh, okay. Got the it. Right. fluctuation. So there are things that we calculate, say we have a measurement of what we think they are, mm -hmm. but using those few numbers, it allows us to explain the cosmic microwave background radiation. It allows us to explain the large-scale structuring, how we get galaxies, clusters of galaxies, those sorts of things. Huh. And so, you know, so the Hubble constant would be one of these types of parameters. Okay. It's probably more familiar to most people. And what's a challenge in a lot of these things, or, or in determining these parameters, is you go out and you make observations. And very often, with these few numbers of parameters, yeah, you can make, the, make a given explanation for this particular value, but often these parameters are degenerate with one another. And what I mean by that is so, so in cosmology, we have the matter density and we have the primordial fluctuations. Well, you could say, all right, uh, I can choose this value and this value, and it gives the right explanation. But if the matter dense, or if, if the fluctuate, the size of the fluctuations uh, goes down, you can compensate for that by moving the matter density up, and you can still get the same sort of scenario out. And so you've got these degeneracies that are really hard to pin down, mm. uh, and they limit how well we know what's going on in cosmology. And so how this particularly played out in this discussion was we look at um, the large-scale structure through gravitational lensing. We look at it through just taking large-scale surveys where we look at a whole bunch of galaxies. Mm -hmm. um, and these two particular parameters, the amplitude or the matter density and the amplitude of the fluctuations, are degenerate in a number of ways based on the observations. So you can tweak the how much the dark matter traces the normal matter, and that affects this relationship between the matter density and the fluctuations. And you get that out of, you know, so you're going to see that in certain kinds of surveys. Or when you're looking out at large-scale structure, how well galaxies are aligned when you're looking at weak lensing. So when we, when we look out at distant objects, in fact, the more distant they are, the more this happens, as distant objects pass by more massive objects in the foreground, the gravity of these massive objects distorts them, and you get this weak gravitational lensing. And so these are the, these large-scale surveys, these weak lensing, these are the, the observations we're using to try and pin down these parameters. Mm -hmm. 
But there are these degeneracies mm -hmm. in those parameters that make it really hard to pin them down. Mm -hmm. And so astronomers are really interested in what sorts of tools can we utilize that would allow us to break the degeneracy in this. Right. And so this is where the machine learning comes in um, because there's copious amounts of data that we're looking at. Right. Uh, you know, astronomers, I, I, I find it fascinating because astronomers are great at coming, and scientists are great at coming up with ways of saying, we've got just this abundance of data. How can we break it down to where we get something useful out of it? You know, so, for example, you look at the cosmic microwave background radiation. It's a bunch of green, well, depending on whether you're talking WMAP or Planck or Kobe, it's a bunch of green and red and blue and yellow dots, fluck, you know, kind of splattered on a map. Well, astronomers or scientists figured out that there are these things called spherical harmonics, which the lowest scale spherical harmonic, you can imagine a ball, and that's just all the same, same color or the same shade. Uh, well, now you've got the next level harmonic is there's a one hemisphere and another hemisphere, which are different colors that alternate back and forth. And then you, you just kind of keep adding harmonics and you get more and more complexity. Well, scientists recognize you can use these spherical harmonics to characterize the cosmic microwave background radiation, and that now gives you information about how the universe developed. Right. So astronomers and scientists are really creative at doing this. But the bigger and the bigger the data set, the harder it is to right. understand what's interesting in there, what patterns are in there that we can extract. And so this is where machine learning has come in. People have said, hey, we can use machine learning to look for these patterns and extract more information out. And, and in this paper, there's a discussion about how you can use machine learning to uh, break this degeneracy and actually increase the the sensitivity to fluctuations in, or the the value that, or this parameter that characterizes the fluctuations, and this parameter that characterizes the matter density, and you get like factors of 1.5 or factors of eight improvement. And so this is really exciting and fascinating research here. What I found interesting about this is when I was in graduate school. The astronomy that I was doing, gamma ray astronomy, had a similar sort of mm -hmm. scenario. Uh, we look, we're looking for gamma rays using a ground-based telescope. And the way these gamma rays are produced, I'll give a little bit of background to understand the connection to the machine learning here, is that as a gamma ray comes into the atmosphere, it creates a particle-antiparticle pair. Uh, there's enough energy in that pair that they're moving faster than the local speed of light. So they emit Cherenkov radiation, which is kind of the equivalent of a sonic boom for light and those particles those light being those light photons are now also uh, going to create particle pairs and so you get this shower of particles and this Cherenkov light coming down and if you put a telescope on the ground this pool of Cherenkov light is about 150 meters in diameter lasts for a few billionths of a second you know three to ten nanoseconds and so the light will come down reflect off the mirror into the detector and you can now image these gamma rays mm -hmm. turns out it's really easy to get the data the problem is gamma rays are about one thousandth anywhere from one hundredth to one thousandth of the number of cosmic rays that come in. Mm -hmm. And so cosmic rays, again, produce these showers, and you see them in there. And the question is, how do you find this needle in the haystack? Right. Well, we found ways. The, it turns out that the shape of the shower is different for gamma rays than it is for cosmic mm -hmm. rays. And mm -hmm. so you can, in the, in the plane of the detector, you can make calculations of how wide the image is, how long it is, various mm -hmm. parameters like that. And you can now use that to discriminate mm -hmm. for the gamma rays against the cosmic rays. Well, there's a lot of information in those showers. And so people thought, hey, let's use machine learning techniques. Neural networks was the particular term used at the time. That's not, not entirely synonymous, but a machine learning and mm -hmm. neural networks are all related to one another. And so I had one of my colleagues that said, hey, we can do this. And so he simulated a bunch of data and he trained his neural network and we were supposed to get improvement out of it. And he applied it to our real data and it did not do any better, if not a little worse than our technique. And I've seen this pattern repeat. That was back in the early 90s when that happened. Yeah. Here we are almost 30 years later and we're still, it seems like we're still playing that same kind of game. 
where we say, all right, there are these tools, we can use these machine learning tools to better understand the data that's there. And yet when we often, in fact, I can't think of a time where when we've actually gone out and applied these techniques to the data, we actually get better information than what mm. humans have just been able to analyze using their calculations. And it seems to me that we're running up on this area or we're that's a, a pointer to the fact that what we're doing when we're doing science is more than just an algorithm. Mm -hmm. Because all of these machine learning things, they're very complex, they're very uh, sophisticated. I'm not, not, not diminishing or being critical of them at all, but ultimately they're just an algorithm that says, given this, this is what you're going to do. And so you train it on data, and from that data it learns how to make predictions or find things in a bigger data yeah. set or something like that. The challenge is, how do you make the training data right. such that it has an accurate reflection of what you're looking for? Because more times than not, what you're doing in these machine learning environments is trying to find patterns that we haven't recognized. Mm -hmm. Well, you're training it on simulated data. Yeah. And the simulated data you're looking at, and every, at least every time I've worked with simulated data, you go say, all right, these are the things that we know it needs to look like. And so we ask, does it align with the things that we know? Right. You really don't have any idea whether it's actually giving an accurate representation of the things that we don't know, the things that the machine learning, these patterns would be looking for. Right. And so it seems like what we're running into is that there is a a creativity, an intuitiveness, a something about the way humans do science that is not just algorithmic. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, kind of like fuzzy logic, right? You Explain. Know, well, you know, because, you know, with, with logic, there's a very, the, you know, these sets of rules, right, right. That, that you're using to discriminate, you know, one scenario from another mm -hmm. scenario, one conclusion from another conclusion. But with fuzzy logic, you've got a very noisy data set. Right. But you as a human are able to, you know, sift through the noise mm -hmm. and are able to, to make those, those conclusions based on logic or based on the, the, you know, the set of criteria that you're using to, right. to draw okay. conclusions, even though the, the, the mathematical algorithm can't do it. Mm -hmm. Because you have this ability to to see the patterns that emer that are emerging in the presence of noise, and so it's it's just called fuzzy logic. No, it, 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 there is a very big similarity. It sounds like in that, and it's something that as humans we kind of know how to do. And what strikes me in this is that I think of the places where the machine learning has been very successful right. and kind of reproduced human level, if not better. Um, we find that in when we're playing chess. We can say, all right, here are the rules of chess, mm -hmm. and then the machines learn how to play chess better than humans. I mean, yeah. in fact, a relatively decent AI chess program is just going to outclass the best human chess players every time at this point. But that's kind of this well-described, mm -hmm. well-constrained environment. And yeah. so in, uh, it's not like the, 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 chess play, the AI chess program is exploring all the possibilities, but it's this very constrained environment, yep. which doesn't apply to science. Or you've got scenarios where you've got uh, AIs that can compose a song or AIs that can have a conversation that make them sound sentient. When you go back and look at the things they were trained on, every one of those were songs that humans have made, words that humans have said, sentences yeah. that humans have written. And so it's drawing upon what humans have done and extrapolating beyond. And it's, it's like we're asking the AI or the machine learning to find patterns that humans haven't found, but we don't have either the training data or the actual data that allows us to do that. And so right. there's there's some intuitive aspect. There's a, I mean, there's an algorithmic aspect to the way we do science. I mean, you're yeah. systematic and you got to make sure your variables are changing right. the way you know. Here's the, but there's always this, well, I think if we do this, this might right. be, or I, it just seems, you know, based on things that I've done in the past, this is going to be the right answer. And I don't yeah. know how you would ever put that yeah. into an AI because it doesn't seem like it's an algorithm. And so yeah. I, I wonder if this is a place where the fact that 
for 30 years, machine learning always has this capacity, oh, it's going to give us this sort of improvement. Right. And when we apply it, it doesn't. That there's something about the way the human brain thinks, the human mind thinks, yeah. that is just so different than what we're doing. It either says AI can't do it, or at least it, it, at the minimum it says our current implementation of AI can't do it. Yeah. And it begs the question or raises the question, will we ever be able to replicate that? And I'm inclined to think there's a spiritual component to that. So we will yeah. never able, never be able to perfectly replicate yeah. it, although we might mimic in a number of ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, I, it may not be completely analogous, but I can remember when I was working at Procter & Gamble and I was in an analytical chemistry section. And so it was pretty common to have pattern recognition software. Mm -hmm, right. you know, so you record an infrared spectrum of an unknown compound, and then you just compare it to a library of compounds, and it looks for the closest match. And, well, then it identifies the substance. The problem is those library searches never really worked. Oh, really? Right? <laughs> well, because, you know, the the it depends upon how – good a quality the spectra are that are in the library. Okay. Right. right? How good a quality that your sample is. Do you have some contaminants mm -hmm, in there? Right. Okay. What's the technique you precisely used? You know, those types of things. And so you never could replace the fact that you needed somebody who knew how to interpret infrared spectra, mm -hmm. which in and of itself is an art. <laughs> right. As much as a science. Yes. Right. You know, uh, you know, you know, so I guess the point is, is that, you know, it's not exactly analogous, but I think you could think of the the library as being type of the type of training set, mm -hmm. right? And then the algorithm that you're using to to compare your spectrum to the library is again being, you know, kind of analogous to the algorithm that the machine learning software produces. Right. And the and the point again is is you know the same point you're making is that you just can't replace you know somebody that actually understands. Right. Well. Well. You know. And, and what you're talking about highlights an, a, a way that AI can really play an important role. I mean, I've read numerous articles recently about, you know, just the, the level or the amount of information contained about various drugs and compounds and chemical right. compounds that the ability of a human to understand and be familiar with that right. literature, it just, it's beyond what we can do. I mean, right. maybe if somebody dedicated their whole life, they might be, but... But an AI would be very good at looking and saying, hey, what we know so far, or, or I see this connection here, it could sift through a lot of that and say, here are some provincing avenues to go pursue. Now yeah. it then requires, it says, okay, instead of having to go through and wade through all of the, right. the murky pool, you get these promising ways to go look. And, and that's kind of what's happened in this paper here, is yeah. they said, hey, here's this promising, way, promising thing that the machine learning found. We think what it's doing is that it's extracting information connected here that we haven't been using. Yeah. And so it the thing that the AI or the machine learning <laughs> generated prompted the humans to go and say, ah, we think this is what's going on. And that may very well be that this one works out because we actually found a new mechanism to extract information out that we right. weren't able to do before. Right. But it's not there, – there's – I can't think of it too many examples where we've just applied machine learning and it's done better than what humans have done. Yeah. It, it can give us insight to know where to go explore, right. but I don't think it's really going to give us that final answer because it does, we don't know what the final answer is. And so even, even if it was doing it better, right. at very minimum, we go and say, okay, how do we understand why? There's always that human component right. because the machine doesn't seem to have the capacity to do that. And, right. and I, I just think this is a an example, if not evidence for the idea right. that we are not just machines. Right. We are machines, but we're machines and. Yeah. And so I think that that's the way the Bible describes us, and I find this consists, yes. it fits very comfortably yeah. with that description. Yeah. You know, I, I read this op-ed piece a few months ago, and I'm, I think maybe we chatted about it, and I'm just curious now that mm -hmm. we're kind of doing the show, what, what your reaction to this is because it's I think it's similar to some of the points that you're bringing up, and the op-ed was about the about AI in science bringing an end to science. Okay, and just as a, an example, I think people that are that follow this kind of literature are probably familiar that 
in the last, you know, several months, there's been two or three very landmark papers published in biochemistry where people were using AI, uh, machine learning mm -hmm. algorithms, to predict protein structure, right. starting with amino acid sequences. And that's kind of like the holy grail of biochemistry, or at least one of them is, how do you take an amino acid sequence and predict the three-dimensional structure of proteins and consequently their functional activity. Right. And people have been working on this problem for decades and decades and decades and have been making some interesting progress along the way, independent mm -hmm. of having AI capabilities. But now, you know, the these researchers took, you know, data sets of right. you know, where you have amino acid sequences, you have structural features in proteins and and are able to predict again these these structures. So that that's very exciting. It's mm -hmm. going to lead to you know drug discovery. It's going to you know do all kinds of interesting things to accelerate you know scientific advance. But the problem that I have, and I'm going to sound like that old guy now, you know, but when I was young, <laughs> this is the way we had to do things. Right. You know, we were men and you weren't that type of thing. But um, you know, to me, what it does is it it there's no longer if you're able to use AI to predict protein structure, that's an incredible, but there's no understanding as to why does that amino acid sequence produce that particular structure. So the trade-off for predicting mm -hmm. the structure and having that capability is potentially the loss of understanding. And so you're no longer developing theoretical models about that describe why proteins uh, adopt the particular mm -hmm. structure they have. You're just saying we can predict it. Right, so you're losing that that theoretical component, that that understanding that comes from work, you know. So you know, because I re, when I was a graduate student, we did some uh, structure uh, predictive work with protein structures. These are small peptides, and so we were literally doing things by hand, mm -hmm. you know, where we were looking at the 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 chemical groups and their orientation in space, and and from that, you know, making educated guesses about how that chain is going to fold. You know that that type of thing. We had some understanding of certain amino acids forming certain types of secondary structures and things like that. Some understanding of how secondary structures interacted, but this was based on mm -hmm. experimental work that people were doing that then you know right. drew conclusions from it. So as we were doing that structure that that predictive work, you know we were you know using first principles mm -hmm. you know to to try to arrive at that con those conclusions it turns out our structural predictions were wrong <laughs> you know so it wasn't like we were doing great stuff i suppose but uh but the point is is that you know through that that process there was a there was learning there was a contribution to the body of knowledge mm -hmm. right. you know even getting it wrong it was informative in terms of mm -hmm. hey this isn't actually as critical as you think in terms of dictating structure. So I guess, you know, that's the concern is that if you start relying on machine learning to such a degree, when do you simply know, when does it simply become uh, running an algorithm and getting a result versus actually doing science? No, I think that's a great point. It, but I would, I guess, you know, maybe draw a parallel. And I, and I, I know there are flaws in this parallel, right. but... Uh, you know, I was talking about the research I do in gamma or did in gamma ray astronomy. Well, you'd have these uh, photo tubes that are at, at the sensitive in the detector plane, and then you'd read them out and you'd get some number from them. And then you'd have anywhere from 100 to 1,000 of these, depending on how sophisticated our camera was. And you'd run that data through these algorithms that produced the width and the length and all of these different parameters that we now used. And what is true is that, uh, you know, you go back maybe 30 years before I was doing that, somebody would have had to sit down and calculate it all right. of those. And you'd right. had an intuitive sense of, well, these, this is what these showers kind of look like. And in some sense, you've lost that. But now, because we have computers that do that, we can now ask the question, how do we push down into lower energies where right. the distinctions between those are different? So I, I kind of see a similar sort of thing. It's not, I, I don't see the machine learning replacing the science. Right. It's almost like the machine learning is saying, all right, 
as humans, we've built up this big enough body of knowledge. We're right. aware enough of the problem that we can use this other tool to extract things so that we can ask the more interesting questions. And, right. and in my uh, you know, a common thing, you know, when you're in a physics class, they'll work, work the problem and they say, oh, this is this kind of problem and we already know how to do that. Well, if you're a new student, you kind of need to work through it. If you've done yeah. it enough times, it's like, oh, I already know that. Yeah. And so my guess is, is that you're going to get people who do still understand that. Right. That's going to be a specialty. Right. And now there's going to be this other specialty, which just says, I assume they know what they're doing. And this is now what I can do new. It yeah. allows us to, to do right. new questions. Um, yeah. The machine learning is going to be used as a tool to allow us to right. advance our scientific knowledge right. as opposed to, oh, we're just done now. We've got we, – we know – I can't imagine a scenario yeah. where you say, all right, well, we've been working at this for decades. We've got it solved. We're done now. Yeah. It's now – it's like, oh, now that we know how they're folding – how, what else can we do with this? Right. There, there's always a right. new question that will yeah, arise and, there. And, and, and I'm, I'm probably 100% or nearly 100% in agreement with you. But but I think there is going to be this this tendency, you know, in, in having worked, you know, again, at, at a company where cost was an issue. It's like, well, if I've got uh, an algorithm that will tell me what the chemical compound is once mm, you record right. the spectrum, I don't need – a PhD chemist, you know, to, to, to monitor that. I can just hire a technician, right? you know, who's less expensive to the company and they can just record the spectrum and run the match and, you know, voila, you get the answer. So there, there is a ten, or there yes. is a temptation, I think, to, to replace that, that expertise with, you know, uh, in terms of understanding with just simply relying on the algorithm. Oh, absolutely. And and if I'm honest, I think that's probably what has happened with a lot of science today in a different way. It used to be that science and philosophy were very integrally connected. That mm. you know, you're there's philosophical things that need to be true or philosophical presuppositions that need to be true in order for science to work. And so we've kind of lost a lot of that and as a result we can very easily be led astray on what we think is interesting or important. I think that's part of why we've gotten mm. to the place where we think science is the answer to everything. Mm. Science has always been an important part. Well, in the last 400 years, science has been an important part of how we understand things. But it's always been a part of how we understand things. Right. If you don't understand the philosophy, you can now assume, oh, hey, mm. if we've got scientific knowledge, that's the only way to get things. That's the only way to know things. And we lose this other thing. Uh, you know, so I, I think that sort of thing has been going on all along, and yeah. it, it kind of reinforces one of the, the points that I'm hoping to make and get people to consider is that AI is neither Christian nor anti-Christian. Whether we do it or not is not, I don't think there's a real, mm -hmm. a lot of apologetic, inherent apologetic, where the Bible says, therefore I expect. But if we don't have the right worldview, we're going to cause a lot of problems with it because it's a pretty powerful tool. It's so powerful, we can get rid of all the chemists and still do right. what we want to do today, but we may not be able to handle what comes up tomorrow because, or tomorrow scientifically may not happen because we've gotten rid of all the expertise right. that allows us to do the next thing. And so yeah. as humans, we got to got to think pretty carefully, right. make sure we're operating with a good worldview. Yeah. Great, great. Great topic, Jeff. Great Thanks. discussion. So I know you have something more interesting, or at least is interesting. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> if it's I don't more... know why I said it that way. I'm yeah. interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot a little, just real quick, if you, right. if you permit me, in in fun in fun. So you know we you know RTB's offices are in the Los Angeles area, right? And we both have lived in the LA area now for a, a while. So I'm just curious, what is your favorite place to go? and hang out, go visit in the L.A. area? Um, or do you even have a favorite place? Well, it, honestly, the favorite place is where my family likes to be. My, my family likes to be at the beach. I like to go to the Griffith Observatory. Oh. I'll, I'll pick the Griffith Observatory. Okay. okay. A single okay. place, either that or, like, Knott's Berry Farm, Magic Mountain type place. Okay, okay. Well, that's good. Well, I mean, these are kind of iconic places right. in, in Southern California. Well, the place that I like to go, and don't judge me now, the, the place I like to go is Venice Beach. 
I like okay. to I like to go to Venice Beach and walk the the, the boardwalk. And Amy and I both love doing it. And yeah. I don't know exactly why, but it's just like this interesting amalgam of humanity. It's like the, the, the number one tourist destination, believe it or not, in Los Angeles. Really? Yeah. I would not have thought that. Yeah, so. I wouldn't have either, but but it is. And and so you, on any given day, you're going to meet people from all over the United States, in fact, all over the world that are walking up and down the boulevard. And, of course, there's people that live there that will, you know, maybe be out on their rollerblades mm-hmm. going up and down the, the boardwalk. Um you know, people on bikes along the the bike the bike trail next to the the boardwalk. So, uh, so before you get too far off, this may show my ignorance here. Are Venice Beach and Muscle Beach the same place? Yes, Venice Beach will goes into Muscle okay, Beach. Okay, all right. Okay, yeah, yes. so that is the similar area. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, you, I mean, well, and then you also have like the 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 artists that are selling stuff, right? You know, underneath their 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 easy ups, that type of thing. You know, and there's the musicians, you know, the homeless people. It's just this amazing amalgam of, of humanity all in one spot. All right. You know, and uh, so for me, it, it's just even though I don't always agree with lifestyle choices that are that are on display there, it is just an interesting place to me if you like people. Uh, but my favorite part of Venice Beach are the street performers. Okay. And the one street performer that, that I like to watch, I don't know if you've ever seen the street performer, is the Glass Man. He's called the Glass Man. Have you ever seen this guy? I, I have not. I've never, honestly, I've never been to Venice Beach. Oh, you've so. you, you got to try it out <laughs> right. at least once. Okay. But, so what he does is he's got this routine where he lays down this, this cloth Right. And he's got a bag full of glass shards okay. that he walks around and he shakes up and then he will add a little bit more to the pile. Right. And he's got a chair that he pulls out and he's in bare feet okay. and he's going to jump on that pile of glass shards. All right. That's the that's the show. That's the show. OK. But it, he works the crowd. Right. <laughs> and so he, he'll get a little bit of money, works the crowd, gets them to go hooba, 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 hooba. Right. And then uh, then he comes back and he'll stand on the chair, creating some drama, get back down, walk around. <laughs> Add a little bit more glass, and then he finally jumps. Yeah, right. He finally, and then he, of course, he gets a payday for okay. for, for that performance. Well, th- this is um, uh, reminds me of. So, uh, are you watching this because of the disaster that might ensue, or what? I, I, well, I'm pretty sure that this guy who does this like two or three <laughs> yes. times a day isn't going to cut his feet. Solid he's, point. Solid he, point. He's got he's got a technique, you know, that he's he's worked out somehow. You know, I right. wouldn't do it, but he's got a technique. Gotcha. But it's just the the showmanship. Gotcha. Okay. It, it's just a brilliant piece of showmanship, and the crowd is having a great time. Well, it turns out that there's a, a group of Origin of Life researchers that are looking to get a payday from some broken ple- pieces of glass. All right. <laughs> and and they published their work in a uh, a few months ago now in a journal called Astrobiology, and it's a team of researchers from a group called FAME, which stands for the Foundation for Applied Molecular Evolution. And it's headed up by a a fairly well-known original life researcher by the name of Stephen Benner. And they did these interesting experiments where they showed that uh, exposing uh, solutions of ribonucleotides in, in pure water to glass will generate uh, RNA molecules. Uh, the, so the, full RNA molecules, not yeah. just pieces of. Yeah, yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, and so the glass is functioning like a catalyst. And okay. their argument is that on the early Earth, because of the impact events, mm. that the silicates that would be present would undergo melting. Right. And then they would under then they would be um, experience kind of a quenching where water or air would cool it down rapidly, creating glasses. And so mm-hmm. they argue that glasses would have been fairly abundant on the Earth. Early on in its history, this right. is, and this there's, seems reasonable. Yeah. yeah, there's geological arguments to support that idea, and so they argue that well, this creates a, a scenario where maybe the this glass is actually catalyzing the pr- production of RNA. Right, and so this they argue is is further validation for the RNA world hypothesis, which is one of the leading models for chemical evolution for, you know, how life could have emerged on Earth. Mm-hmm. Starting with simple chemical systems, and so it's you. It's worth I, th- I think spending just a minute understanding the RNA world hypothesis before we kind of unpack the the work okay. they did, and then kind of where I offer my assessment. But this is a 
a cartoon showing the central dogma of molecular biology. And, and this is a, an idea developed by Francis Crick that has held true in terms of understanding information and the flow of information in the cell. Okay. And so the top is, is the DNA molecule, the DNA double helix. And in this molecule, information is stored to essentially build the cell and direct the cell's operation. Sometimes it's called the blueprint of life or life's instruction manual, things like that. And that information is harbored in the sequence of, of nucleotides that are used to build DNA. These right. are subunits, four different types, A, G, C, and T, and it's that sequence of subunits that contains the information needed to build proteins, mm -hmm. which are large molecules uh, that carry out different activities in the cell, form cell structures. But the way in which the information in DNA is used to make proteins is through, uh, again, the central dogma where cell, the cell's machinery, usually proteins, will read the information in DNA, make a copy of that in the form of a molecule called RNA, and then the RNA makes its way to the ribosome where it's read, and then uh, amino acid chains are assembled and proteins are formed. And, and this and then, of course, DNA can replicate, right. where the, it'll produce two daughter molecules that are partitioned to the two daughter cells during the cell division process. The key point here is that there's this interdependency between proteins and DNA, that DNA cannot replicate unless there are proteins to replicate it. It right. can't replicate on its own. Even the process of transcription requires proteins. The process of, of protein production at the ribosome requires proteins. Mm -hmm. And so you have proteins and DNA being kind of, again, interdependent. This is significant because in— So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. You need proteins to get DNA. You need DNA to get proteins. Exactly. Which one first? Oh, exactly. Sweet. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Uh, so, yeah, but that's exactly the point is that, you know, when, when original life researchers in the early days were trying to understand— well, how did life emerge? Was it DNA first? Was it, uh, or, or sorry, was it protein first? Mm -hmm. that, that they they kept running into this chicken and egg dilemma. Right. And so the the resolution to that is that maybe the very first biochemistry was based on RNA, and then that the RNA world invented the DNA protein world later on. Okay. That it evolved to give rise to that. So presumably, it, RNA can replicate without the proteins. Uh, no, nobody's been able to do that yet. That's kind okay. of another holy grail okay, all in, right. in, in origin life research. So, but, so what makes the RNA better than the DNA in this Well, instance? because RNA can not only hold information like DNA, but it can also serve as a catalyst. And, and this is uh, um, based on a discovery. This, these, are called, these are examples of what are called ribozymes. In 19, early 1980s, Thomas Cech discovered that RNA molecules could function like enzymes, and okay. he, he dubbed them ribozymes. Okay. And this was considered a huge breakthrough mm -hmm. in, in the RNA world scenario because it's like, well, if RNA can function like, like proteins, but it can also store information like DNA, mm -hmm. then maybe the very first biochemistry was really RNA-based, okay. and that it evolved to give rise to the, to the DNA protein world, uh, where today the intermediary role that RNA plays in the central dogma is considered to be, uh, these are, they're considered to be molecular fossils okay. of, of, the, of an earlier RNA world era. And so, you know, people have come up with schemes like this, this for the RNA world where you'd have on the early earth these ribonucleotides that would undergo some kind of polymerization reaction to form short RNA chains that could then combine to form longer chains that could then fold into these ribozymes okay. that would become encapsulated. Eventually, somehow, self-replication emerged. This is a huge problem in the RNA world right now. And that that would lead to uh, protocells that would eventually give rise to kind of an RNA-based biochemistry. Well, and presumably, once you have cells replicating what may go on after that, you got a lot more possibilities, but getting everything started is yes. really a big challenge. Right. And so the work that Steve Benner and his team at Fame did recently is looking at how do you get RNAs to polymerize? Okay. How do you get the polymerization process to work? 
And, and so he, he's really looking at the very first step in this process right. with the idea that once you have RNAs available, then everything else can happen kind of through a, a type of molecular Darwinian evolution. Gotcha. Uh, so, so just to understand a little bit more about uh, uh, what um, about RNA so that we can appreciate their work, this is a, a short piece of RNA, kind of a cartoon. And RNA consists of a alternating, a backbone that alternates between a phosphate group and a sugar called a ribose sugar. And the phosphate is actually a bridge molecule that links one sugar to the other through what's called a three prime, five prime phosphodiester linkage If you for people keeping score at home. So th that's the backbone. And then the 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 uh, attached to the sugar is also the these nucleobases. And in, in RNA, it's cytosine, adenine, guanine, and uracil instead of thymine. Uh, so that's the, one of the differences between RNA and DNA. But the way in which that chain, so that you, what you want to do is now pr produce this kind of a molecule. Right. You know, starting with the, the, the nucleotide building blocks. And the in the cell, the reaction works this way where you have a, an RNA chain that's on the left and that OH group in the three prime position of the ribose will attack the phosphate group, kicking off a pyrophosphate unit, and you add to the growing chain. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially a, a you know a condensation reaction. Well, because of the chemical functional groups involved, if you have a catalyst, it's going to accelerate the reaction. And so this is a cartoon showing silica, which mm -hmm. is you know a, a silicon atom f surrounded by four oxygen atoms. Right. So silicon dioxide is the is the empirical formula, but the molecular formula would be right. a central silicon with four oxygens, where the oxygens are shared with silicon atoms. But at the very surface of silica are going to be these OH groups, these chemically active right. OH groups that can serve as catalysts. Mm -hmm. And so it's a given that you have glass on the early earth, you know, it's not a leap to go to think that maybe that glass could serve as a, a catalytic, uh, you know, a, as a catalyst for RNA assembly. And so here's a, a, a piece of data from their paper. And uh, this is what's called a, a polyacrylamide gel. And what, what it's just a gel that is made up of a particular polymer. And what you do is you add, you know, a solution to the top and you pass an electrical current through the gel, and it causes charged molecules to migrate through the gel. And so the smaller molecules migrate more, faster than the larger molecules. So what they did is they took a number of different glasses that they made in the lab. Mm -hmm. So depending upon how you quench the, the, the molten silica, right. you're going to get different types of glasses with different types of morphologies. I don't know that I fully appreciate that the difference, you know, between the different types of glasses. Right. But they had five or six glasses that they'd made in the lab that they worked with, and they exposed the glasses to solutions of just in distilled water of ribonucleotides, and then they would take the, those reaction mixtures and just run them on the gel. And they, they started seeing these larger bands, or these bands that didn't migrate very far, that indicated a larger molecular weight material was being okay. formed. And then they would treat the, the reaction with an enzyme called RNase, which breaks down RNA molecules. And when they did that, the bands, the large bands would disappear. So that, that leads them to believe that they actually created RNA polymers uh, that they estimate based on the migration of about 100 to 300 subunits in size. So these are pretty large RNA molecules. So when you're talking RNA molecules that are in a cell presumably you're talking millions and billions. So it's far short of that, but it's substantially yeah. long, or am I, am well, I off well, on my now numbers? The right? RNA molecules in, in a, the DNA is going to be right. millions of base pairs. The RNA molecules that will be produced are going to be much smaller than that. You know, maybe... I, I guess my, my ultimate question is how big are these molecules right. compared to what's in the cell? Well, in a sense, that, that comparison doesn't matter for the RNA world. Okay. What, what matters is, is, are the RNA molecules long enough to fold into functional ribozymes? Right, okay. And so when you're about 100 to 300 nucleotides in size, you've got 
uh, RNAs that are big enough to, to function as ribozymes. Okay, so this is research a long way in the step of saying, hey, we've got something right. that is big enough to do what we want it to so do. So in, okay. in other words, what they're saying is that on the early Earth, if you had glasses and you had RNA building blocks, the ribonucleotides, that that could catalyze RNA molecules of sufficient length mm-hmm. that it would lead to the next step right, okay. in the RNA world, which would be the formation of functional ribozymes. So how does this compare? Because I know there have been uh, studies that show that on clays you can get right. long-chain ribonucleic-type things. But my recollection was that they stick to the clays. Getting them off of the clays is really hard. Is that a problem here? Or yeah. Same same sort of problem there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll see that in a minute. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, but another thing that that's of significance is that they actually noted that different types of glasses perform differently as catalysts. So the right. uh, a type of silica called or a glass called diabase is the is the most catalytic, mm-hmm. uh, followed by basalt, and the, those two are much much better as catalysts than the other types of, of glasses that they worked with. Okay. And, and so anyway, so th- these researchers claim that this, again, it really represents a significant advance in validating mm-hmm. the RNA world hypothesis. Now, the, my response to this uh, is maybe not so fast. That, that's maybe a, a, a bit of a far-reaching conclusion. Now, to be clear, this is a very elegant study. Right. It's... Um, you know, uh, I think it's a demonstrating that in principle, you know, this could very well be an important reaction mm-hmm. on the early Earth. So, without question, it's a significant advance. But I don't know that this could be justifiably argued as validation or moving towards validation of the RNA world hypothesis. And the reason be- is because one of the problems right now that that uh, really haunts work in prebiotic chemistry is something known as unwarranted researcher involvement. And this was actually the theme of one of the themes in my book, Creating Life in the Lab, is that what original life researchers are doing when they engage in prebiotic chemistry is they go in the lab and they're setting up these very carefully constructed experimental systems that are highly controlled, that are chemically pristine, where, you know, the the, the, the pH, the order of addition is regulated for the different reactants, the, you know, the temperature is controlled, they stop mm-hmm. the reaction at the just right time. And the concern is that at some point, while you need to have obviously human agents involved, and otherwise the experiment would never happen, and certain amounts of, of control are necessary mm-hmm. to interpret the results, the problem is, is that, is that relevant to the conditions of the early Earth? And at what point does the researcher become actually unwittingly a part of the experimental design right, yeah. where they're contributing to the success? And it's interesting, in 2018, there was a paper published by a German original life researcher who essentially formalized this concern. I have seen original life researchers give voice to this concern, mm-hmm. you know, kind of informally at scientific meetings. But here, here's the first example where an original life researcher actually publishes this concern, right. saying that, you know, that human intervention is actually contributing to the success of many prebiotic experiments, and that it's hard to see what would replace that that the human <laughs> researcher on the on the early Earth. Well, so if I mean, if I understand, kind of the the thought process is there's basically the question of can we replicate something that would at least do the things that we want to do. Right. And obviously you're working in a lab, you know, you got to buy the chemicals, all that sort of stuff. And you probably want to make it as minimally invasive as you can. But then then the kind of the line of reasoning would be, well, we've done this here, presumably on the earth. There's just enough environments that, yes, we've done this very specific thing somewhere right. out there or some few places it's going to happen on the right. early earth. Is the line of reasoning correct? Yeah. And, and the way I like to, to unpack that is to say when you engage in work in prebiotic chemistry, there's really three objectives. One is what I would call proof of principle. You know, does okay. that chemistry even work? Right. Right. You know, so I think Benner and his team check off that box. What's the mechanism? Well, they did a number of experiments where they were working through 
what are the, some of the, the mechanisms, some of the factors that influence the, the, the outcome of the, these reactions. That's, that's perfectly fine to have heavily, heavily involved researcher in, mm-hmm. you know, in intervention. But when you start talking about is this relevant to the early Earth, that's where any kind of researcher intervention that crosses the line really becomes a liability. Right. So what does cross the line mean? Because I, I could I mean, I could easily say the moment you've put them in the jar. I mean, obviously, the researcher had to do that. And there's right. obviously fairly exacting or they've got to yeah. be the right numbers of reactants and the right concentrations. Right. But that's a place where I could envision just a, ver- a variety of concentrations out in, in nature right. somewhere. Where does cross the line happen it, in your assessment? That's a good question, and, it, and, it, and there's not a hard and fast criteria okay. right, as to where that line actually is. And it may vary depending upon the, the particular chemical process that you're looking at. Mm. You know, but the, the point is that, to, that researchers need to be cognizant, and that, that's – you know, uh, Clemens Reichert's point is that researchers need to be cognizant of the fact that they are actually involved in the experimental design, and they may be influencing the outcome, and they may be creating artificial scenarios that have very little relevance, you know, to the early to the conditions of the early Earth. So it's it's not a hard and fast criteria, uh, and in some instances, it's debatable as to has the researcher crossed the line mm-hmm. or not. You know, so it, it, but the point is, is that there are probably a lot of experiments where the researcher's um, involvement has contributed to the success. And I think this is one of those situations, the work that, okay. that Steve Benner did. And I'll, and I'll present the argument why I think that's the case. But interestingly enough, Steve Benner is actually very much aware of that concern, right? Mm-hmm. So to his credit, and so uh, in a commentary on his work, he said, one community of, of original life researchers revisits classical questions in prebiotic chemistry with complex chemical schemes that require difficult chemistry performed by skilled chemists. Their beautiful craft work appears in brand name journals such as Nature and Science. However, precisely because of the complexity of this chemistry, it cannot possibly account for how life actually originated on Earth. So really credit to Steve Benner for, for recognizing this. Right. You know, and so his argument is that, look, this is a very simple experiment. You just dissolve the ribonucleotides in water, you put, expose them to glass, and voila, the RNA forms. You don't need to have any kind of skill as a chemist. So th- this wouldn't fall into his very complex, very sophisticated right. reaction. This right. is a very simple reaction. But, but my point is that he has hidden the complexity in his experimental design. How so? Well, for example, he's using distilled water, which I'm not. It's not clear if there would be a source of distilled water on the early Earth or think, highly pure water. I think the nature of the early Earth says everything's not distilled. But. Right. Yeah. Well, or in other well, words, I guess, I guess you could not, have it where it's condensing out of the atmosphere. Right. But periods of distilled. It's water. hard to come up with a real, a, a robust scenario that would apply, you know, right, yeah. to a big enough area on the Earth that this is. This right. is, you know, legitimate. He's buying, he's getting the either ribonucleotides off the shelf, right? I, I'm gathering those are not simple chemicals. Well, uh, as Leslie Orgel once said, the synthesis of, of ribonucleotides on the early earth is the chemist's nightmare. Okay. Nobody has produced any kind of reasonable scheme for how ribonucleotides could form on the early earth. People have suggestions and have done experiments, but none of them really seem mm-hmm. to involve chemistry that is simple enough, as he's you know, pointing out, it's simple enough that it would run on the early Earth. These are very complex reaction schemes to get ribonucleotides. So okay, he, so, so starting with those hides the complexity right. of how do you get them in the first on place. To, and then another problem is you have to have all, all the ribonucleotides of the same chirality, the same handedness. So right. mo- some molecules can exist in different orient, spatial orientations so that they're mirror images of one another. Mm-hmm. And, and if you have mixed chirality for the ribonucleotides, they will not polymerize. They won't form RNA chains. That's experimentally right. established. So he's using a 
a homochiral situation. Nobody knows how homochirality would have emerged either. So yes, indeed, it's a very simple reaction that he's doing, but he's hidden he's hidden the complexity. But so so he's got kind of a very neat reaction, but you've got to get distilled water somehow. Right. And in that distilled water, you have to get these ribo right. ribo acids. Right. What's that? Ribonucleotides. Ribonu- ribonucleotides. They are acids, though. Okay, ribonucleotides. And in the in that, once you've gotten those two steps, somehow there has to be something that switches them all to the same handedness. Right. And so those are three non-trivial steps yep. to get to a very simple reaction at this point. Right. But there's other things that he's done too, because again, he's working with a chemically pristine system. But on the early Earth, there would have been all kinds of other molecules that would have been present right. that okay. would have interfered with the assembly of the RNA chain. This is actually called the homopolymer problem by Robert Shapiro. So he sidestepped the mm-hmm. homopolymer problem by using, a, again, a chemically pristine system. That's perfectly fine for a proof of principle experiment or mechanistic studies. It's no longer legitimate when you're trying to say, is this possible on the early Earth? So he's ignored the homopolymer problem. He's done other things like... He well, pa- so, so is it true? I mean, if, you know, just as an outsider, my next thought would be, okay, can I start introducing those things in and still get that? So it, it seems like in some principle or at some level, he recognizes, okay, we don't have what's going on here. We've got something interesting, but there are steps you could take to see, does this actually work? In it, there? Exactly, exactly. Or even using, uh, even using uh, distilled water. Mm-hmm. Again, it's highly unlikely you're going to have distilled water. You're going to have you know, aqueous systems with high levels of, you know, different types of salts in them. And I can tell you that the salts are probably going to coat the silica surface. Which changes your catalytic reaction as well. Yes, right. So that's another problem. He powdered the glass. Now, and so instead of using glass chunks, he powdered it into, and so. Okay. In chemistry, all chemistry is happening at surfaces. (laughs) So you've dramatically increased the surfaces by doing that. And that increases the catalytic success. So, you know, on the early earth, you're going to have much larger glass shards that are probably going to have a very low surface to volume ratio versus a very high surface to volume ratio. Uh, Another thing that he did, and this is a point you made earlier, is he treated the, after the reaction to get the RNAs off the glass, he treated it with the reaction with urea. Mm-hmm. And urea is a com- will, will compete with hydrogen bonding of biomolecules on glass surfaces. So that would allow the RNA to desorb from the glass, which with, if it wasn't for that urea treatment, that wouldn't happen. In fact, as a biochemist, one of the big – you never do anything in glass if you can avoid it because biomolecules stick to glass like crazy <laughs> and they don't come off. Right. Right, and so you either have to coat the glass with some kind of special materials to keep that from happening, or you just do your work in polypropylene tubes. But yeah, so, so the fact that he's using urea, you know, again to to release the RNA molecules, it creates a scenario that's just really artificial. So, so maybe so that, that's kind of a, the the reaction is simple, but not only do you have these three steps leading right. up to it that are hard there's this for there's another step after that reaction that right makes it exactly useful, so. and then as we saw earlier different glasses perform differently so i don't know of anybody that has produced an inventory of the types of glasses on the early earth but you very well could have a preponderance of glasses that would not function well as catalysts just because again all glasses are not equal yes. as catalysts so point is very interesting work it's high quality work it's it's you know, fascinating, fascinating stuff, and it and it does add to the richness of the the types of possibilities for prebiotic chemistry. Don't get me wrong; I just think that his, his as much as he has even thought about this whole issue of realistic and geochemically relevant scenarios for prebiotic chemistry, as much as he's thought about that, and I think sincerely, mm-hmm. he actually I think it failed to recognize the role that he and his team actually played as human agents, as intelligent agents in the outcome of this, uh, of the, their experiments. And so, ironically, they've presented an empirical case for intelligent design. <laughs> so, No, it's pretty fascinating. It's, uh, 
it's just it seems to me that when you hear announcements, oh, we've got we've got the origin of life so solid. At the very minimum, you say let's be cautious here. Yes, it's fascinating work. I mean. Yeah. I, I have enough chemistry to appreciate how cool this is, but uh, it's there's just a lot left to do, and so yeah. just be cautious. And it's, it's reasonable for me as an outsider to be skeptical to claim to claims right. that they've solved the problem, yes. at least initially, and then let's go investigate. Yeah. So yes, okay. Well, that brings an end to this episode, Jeff. Thanks for for your discussion and and for for you know the the, the discovery that you brought. Um, Thanks for joining us today on Star Cells and God. Uh, join the discussion in the comments below. And remember to like the video and to subscribe on our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe. Uh, and also, again, as I said, set a reminder so you'll get notified when the latest episodes drop. Follow us on social media, RTB underscore official. And uh, make sure that you share this video with, with friends and family members, people that you love or people that you think might be interested in, in these kind of conversations. And I just want to leave you with this final thought. The more that we know about science, the more that we have reasons to believe.